Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This week's topic, uh, which was April 29th, was supply chain security. And we had a robust and uh, varied conversation about how to secure infrastructure in the future and what it's going to take to finally get security taken seriously. Uh, it's a supply chain problem. It's a vendor problem. It's a customer problem. And it's a very significant one that threatens to undermine the very fabrics of what we've been building together. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, it was a really good one. I, I was interested in talking, going back to security, the, the supply chain um, security discussion. So at last, last week, we talked about um, sort of this greenfield idea of what, what makes um, you know, sort of working backwards. And we started talking about security. Um, Greg Althaus was on and one of my, uh, he was messaging me in the back channel about security in, in our Nirvana situation, um, along the lines of 70% of the processing power. Um, and I don't know where he got the statistic, but I, I, have no reason to disagree with it. The seventy percent of the processing power in, in compute environments is going to end up going to just securing those environments. Um, and then, so that was that was a pickup point from our conversation last time, where we were sort of talking about what the ideal compute environment would be and working backwards. Mark, this was spawned by you and I having our one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, and then with the CodeCov um, hack. Uh, and I can give people details on that. Supply chain um, security came back in mind. And so those are two security topics that I think are worth discussing from how do we, what are we doing? How do we, how does this stuff work in the future? Um, so CodeCov uh, is a company that provides code analysis to tell you whether or not you, you're doing adequate testing. Pretty widely used. Um, I would consider it supply chain software since it's part of your CI/CD pipeline. Uh, they got compromised, and so anybody, which is almost everybody, using CodeCov um, has the potential that components of you know, all of their software has actually been uh, scanned. And since they have the keys to the kingdom to access all your code, um, there's the potential of all sorts of compromises. Specifically, um, and kudos for them disclosing it, HashiCorp revealed that their GPG keys, their private GPG keys, which they use for code signing, were exposed as part of this, as part of the CodeCov hack. So the ability to, to create fake HashiCorp products, find them with the private key and distribute them um, you know, is, is a possibility depending on who who ended up with those keys and and what their policy is for rotating it. Um, but it's a very clear supply chain risk um, type discussion. And HashiCorp HashiCorp has revoked the private key that or the private keys that have been exposed. I think as of about two days, three days ago. Is that correct? I'm assuming I'm assuming they issued new keys, yeah. But, but the the challenge is more that they have to rotate the public keys that were in signing, which is exactly so all of the all of the code that they've produced so far with the with the old with the, with the public side of that key um, is going to not be able to differentiate between new and old components. Um, yeah. And I I don't know how I didn't I didn't go all the way down the rabbit hole on what they've been using that key for. But I do know, like uh, Terraform providers, um, are signed by Terra by by Hashi, probably using that key. Um, and so, if you are using Terraform and it, you know, behind the scenes pulls in a provider, it's going to check to see that that provider is legit based on that key. So somebody could create a you know an illegitimate provider at that point, and those do actually handle companies. The, you know, credentials. Well, it speaks to a, the need for the same kind of underpinnings that you want to start there, GDPR has, which is the necessary means of 
using something that's cryptographically anchored, but the ability to um, roll it back or kind of remove it from remove it from service in such a way that um, it's retroactive. That is, it it's it's kind of idempotent. It, the the revocation is idempotent. And that's that's a very, very tough problem. It's a very tough problem. And you well, can do it, you can do it in a in a kind of in well well-managed kind of enclosed kind of constrained data set situation but what we're talking about now is hardly that but isn't the issue really kind of twofold one is how to address the current threats so these private keys that are out there and exposed but then the second piece is thinking about a new architecture, a new way to prevent this from happening so that if something were compromised in the future, there would be an easy way to kind of back away from that without that, that, exposing that really others is, into the mix. Yeah, that really is what I'm talking about, Tim. Uh, the, the kind of dealing with the current situation and trying to remediate that, uh, that's a, that is just a, that is a bloody mess. What I was actually talking about was how, what would be the, the thought process and what would be the, the constraints you'd want to put on a solution that would, going forward, be manageable. And I wasn't quite sure, Rob, what you were referring to about the 70% utilization of compute to protect our systems. What was, what was the reference there? This was so Greg, Greg, and he didn't, he didn't um, jump in with this uh, during the conversation last week. Uh, it was a one-on-one. -on -one. He mess. He was, he was messaging it uh, behind the scenes to me as a sort of a question, but, and without, uh, I don't want to get distracted by 70% as the number um, as much, but the idea is, is, in, as we do more and more security, security is an overhead, right? Um, and the, the challenge becomes how much of our, um, you know, what's the right number? Actually, let me ask it this way. What's the right number of investment, of percentage of productivity to invest in the security side, uh, practically, right? Ideally, it would be built in, it would be zero, but you know, how much, how much should we expect to be investing in securing our systems and how, how can we make that a smaller number? And, you know, maybe there's a, like, Hey, you know what? We could, <laughs> we could be spending 50% just making things secure. Um, nothing will get done. Ideally it would be zero because the systems would just be secure, but there's always um, some amount. And Tim, if you want to frame that in another way, I'm happy to have it. I feel like I'm, I mean, Mark, Mark had his hand up first. Well, I mean, just really quickly, and this uh, I think goes back to what um, uh, maybe a little bit of what Tim and Rich were hinting at a minute ago is, is um, I, I do think that uh, asking how much it should cost us today um, is like how, asking how much it should cost us to fix a money pit in the form of a house. We have no fucking idea. And we have no idea whether the house will fix afterwards will be worth anywhere near what we invested in attempting to make it a house that's worth living in. And I think that's, I mean, that's what I wrote. I mean, I'm not a security expert. So, you know, my opinion means shit um, in the wider scheme of things, but, but okay, I, next I, do comment. Believe, <laughs> I do believe I, I have at least some experience in intelligence in applying strategy to how IT is employed and how it's considered for future adoption and use and, and, and expansion, et cetera, et cetera, which prompted me to write the blog I wrote, you know, four, five, six months ago or whatever about, um, you know, how we've been fighting the, the security war the same way we've been fighting the drug war. We buy more weapons, we hire more cops, we get more body armor, and we actually have made the problem worse. We haven't made the problem better in 50 years of drug war 
We have done, we, we have more drugs on the street today than we did in the, in the fifties and the sixties. And that's, that's kind of where I was thinking, Mark, is that, you know, is this really the right question to be asking? Um, because it's, it's gotten to a point, at least in the circles that, that I'm playing in, where people don't want to talk about security anymore for that very reason. It's like, unless you have something demonstrably different or a different way to approach it, I don't want to talk about the same thing over again as to what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it, because it's not working. It's not working. We've heard the same thing for 10, 12, 15, 20 years. And so this is why I think the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we not make it about how much money we spend or a percentage of whatever metric you want to use um, spent towards security and actually make it part of the built-in, I don't know, automated process without throwing a bunch of buzzwords into the mix, right? So that it's actually part of the core instead of kind of a bolt-on afterthought that you have an explicit conversation about. And so you start to think about things like you learn from, you don't try and solve the HashiCorp problem, right? You don't try and solve the whole private key problem, but rather what you do is you kind of step back and say, look, we have all this expertise. Can't we come up with a better way to do this? Because the way we've been going and the way we, kind of to Mark's point, the way we've been trying to quote unquote iterate isn't working. So how do we do this different, uh, completely differently where it's part of the DNA rather than a separate piece? Well, and also to add a little I have bit. very strong um, feelings on is, that. Go ahead. Mark, this go is ahead. a slightly different angle. Sorry, Rob. A uh, slightly different angle, That's but right. in, in parallel to what um, Tim and I have been saying is that the number one reason in the, in the real big scheme of things, why it happens, the number one reason why disaster avoidance planning and programming don't get better adoption in the industry is because they don't believe that the money and time they spend on it is worth the risk. That's really the reason. And so if when they can easily justify the risk and, and recognize the, um, the intrinsic value in having um, disaster avoidance, um, then most companies do it. I mean, I knew companies that managed to, to use two different data centers as full backups for each other, um, you know, and, and move workload from one place to another. I had a, I had a friend that was doing that from, from Phoenix to Sacramento on a monthly basis as, as a test run for his virtual environments. Um, you know, so people do it when they know they have to. But just as an example, I know there's probably people shaking their heads going, Mark, you're crazy. That's not what happens. But I can tell you that at Gilead, um, I and the CIO suggested that we should put some business continuity strategies in place, not just, oh, we make IT redundant. Okay, we make IT redundant. Nobody has access to it. What the fuck does it matter, right? So how do we, how do, we do business continuity? How do we make sure factories can still run, people can still get access to their office files, et cetera, et cetera? And, but what it came down to is they were making so much money hand over fist that they couldn't afford somebody from a line of business that had any real knowledge of the business to spend even an hour or two a week for the course of a project to make sure that they were on board with the project, that value didn't strike them in the face as compared to potential lost opportunity. So how much lost opportunity do we have? It's like taking money out of your 401k to spend too much money on security. Um, the money that you put in security is money that's not making you money somewhere else. And when you take the risk of an attack versus the fact that you're making potentially making less money than you were before, you see the balance begins to shift in favor of, ah, we'll just do enough. Yeah. And it's, it's, the, it's the insurance problem, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's, you know, mm -hmm. how, much do, how much is it worth to you to... Yeah, and what are you willing to pay? Often, you don't know to what degree it's actually going to be effective. I think getting back to the, the, the question that Rob asked, it strikes me that it needs to be incorporated. The, whatever we're talking about as a solution has to be incorporated 
at the earliest point possible in the design and development of systems. In other words, a, it's the kind of thing that gets incorporated as part of your CICD uh, efforts. It gets uh, incorporated as um, a necessary best practice in your enterprise architecture. And without that, and without that kind of admission to oneself that uh, making that investment now, it um, you are putting yourself, your customer, your company at risk. We're very as you know, just in general, human beings have a have a a really bad track track record at at assessing risk. So if I could offer this. There's two parts to this equation. One is how much security can be built in, whether it's at the chip level or anything beyond that, like jelly beans forward, or the business risk. And in terms of the background in manufacturing or whether it's pharmaceutical or tech, um, part of one of the ISO standards, not in ITIL, but one of the ISO standards that a lot of the manufacturing community has to adhere to from a compliance perspective incorporates IT security risk as part of overall business risk. So it's a plus 20 equation. Whatever you're calculating the risk factors as being, you add 20% for IT security risk. It's a given, it's baked in, built in, and you must comply, case closed. And so from that perspective, I think that's the way perhaps we as practitioners, analysts, whatever, need to approach the issue because to Tim's point, people are tired of talking about it. They're not looking for the silver bullet anymore. They're looking for the best way to stave off their insurance company. Because now more and more certain industries are also becoming um, caveated by their insurance providers for their business insurance that they must have some security measures in place and, and so forth. Now, I can tell you from personal experience with Celestica, for example, 30 operating companies, 28 geographies, we had backups of backups. We had three independent data centers around the world in different geographies, all interconnected. If one failed, the other could come back. And then if that one failed, the other one can come back. And it was a huge cost. But we're talking also about a size of a corporation where, you know, a $20 million expenditure on a piece of software for manufacturing is like, you know, salt on the table. They don't care. Um, they were one of the companies that adopted this. There's a lot of big tech and aerospace manufacturers that do the same. Anybody who's got a, a very global perspective will go down that road. And I think that that notion of the plus 20 should become a de facto standard because it's affecting your brand, it's affecting your business operations. You cannot deal with supply chain issues per se in a pandemic where you have issues with the supply chain itself and be held liable. But for security and breaches of security, yes, you can. So one of the questions I would ask you on that, because I, I, I'm giving, I'm, I'm, I'm like nodding, hell yeah, that I think, I think a, a budget amount, 20% for security sounds particularly reasonable. That's but per the project. Way you're, the way you're describing it, it's an integrative approach of a big company. And, and the thing yes. that has me concerned about, and, and this is what I see on our, in the industry as a whole, is that we are fragmenting and making things smaller and smaller, right? The, the cost of integration, which is actually where I was gonna go on, on my point, right? The, the thing that you're talking about is actually an integrated solution to a whole, all of your IT problems and treating it like a system. And security is gonna require a systems approach. Mm -hmm. How do we, and at the same time, I, you know, the way tech is progressing is it, it's either progressing, move everything into one vendor, and even like an Amazon, if you were all in on Amazon, it would still be chopped into, you know, across what hundreds of services for, for you to manage and secure. Um, you know, how do we, 
how do we get vendors to actually build integrated security? Because the, the, the challenge is if you start popping in all these vendors, right? I added, let's, I mean, I'll go back to CodeCov specifically. Somebody's probably using CodeCov thinking that they're, they're you know, they're, they're bending their 20%, they're securing all their systems, and they don't even realize that CodeCov is part of their supply chain necessarily, and it's exposing their, their systems to risk. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Sorry, J just to add a point to clarify, I see the, the CodeCov situation. Yeah, HashiCorp did its thing. It doesn't mean that Terraform did its thing, and it doesn't mean that it's not spreading through AWS. That's right. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, that, and, 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 and the millions the of, of open source projects that CodeCov is scanning, right? For free. Right. So, so that's why I go back to this notion, and I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Tyler, I know you want to make a point. Um, I just want to clarify this. This plus 20, um, in these very, very large companies, you have program management offices that then deal with directors of projects and, you know, TLs and the whole infrastructure of organization that goes through that. But it becomes the mandate of the PMO which is a direct report into either the CFO or the CEO, and it becomes policy. So I think to your question, Rob, the question is not getting the vendors, it's getting the enterprises to demand it of the vendors. That's the way they get pushed because then there's money on the table that they're gonna lose. So there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about things like this. I was on a Mesa call yesterday with about 65 people, all of whom are in manufacturing and supply chain, and they're asking exactly the same question. How do we force the vendors to do this? And my answer and, and other people's answers as well was this notion of you have to put it into policy for the enterprise and demand it of the vendors. It becomes one of your criteria for you get the you get the money or you don't. Yeah. You you also yeah. have to be okay with them moving slow. Well and you could you could certainly start by uh, uh, in the contract with the vendors uh, making them indemnify you for any losses instead of the, the current uh, software stuff that says we're not responsible for anything. At well, some the, point, the... software has to be responsible. I can tell you hey, the folks. contracts I signed. Hey, folks, tons of folks. can we get Tyler to, to jump in here? I feel like he's been kind of sidestepped there a bit. Oh, sorry. Uh, what, what I wanted to add, I, I was piggybacking off of what Mark said earlier about the drug wars. I would I I would take uh, uh, another angle on that and and characterize it as similar to climate change and global warming. That what we have is we have shared societal risk, where vendors and um, um, are not incented to address the the risk that's spread across all of the different players. Um, that. Um, it, 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 the reason why there's this arms race, if you will, uh, with uh, cybersecurity is that the bad actors are making money off of it, right? You know, just like in the drug war. Um, and they're making money off of it by hurting all of us. Now, the, the, um, the article I sent about what Tim Berners-Lee is doing, uh, it makes me think that, I, I guess my opinion is that we're not going, the large enterprise does not have the leverage to force Microsoft to uh, indemnify them for cybersecurity breaches. It, 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 I, don't, I don't see that the, the power dynamic in the vendor relationship is such that, that folks can demand that. So the alternative is um, a, a regulatory approach. And I think that's kind of what you were, might be alluding, uh, uh, others are alluding to. And, you know, so, so like GDPR has a requirement that you have to appoint a chief data protection officer. Uh, so they, they put systems and requirements in place 
so that companies are able to protect the privacy of um, EU data, uh, you know, the residents. Uh, I think that the only way we're going to solve this is the same sort of policy requirements uh, for cybersecurity as with with privacy. Um, and I'm not normally a fan of regulatory stuff, you know, except where it's necessary. And I think here it, it absolutely is necessary because I, I just don't see any other way that we're going to force big tech vendors, the software companies, to, to, to reinvent the core platform to build security in from the ground up. Yeah, I would add a little bit to what Tyler said. I first, I totally agree. There's no precedent in um, in current uh, large vendor service provision to IT buyer. There's no precedent for paying for actual loss. There's only precedent for paying a prorated amount based on what the service disruption meant in the form of how much your bill was that month. Um, and so that's that's never going to happen. I, I don't see. Um, first of all, because one security break could bankrupt even Amazon or every insurance company in the world if it happened to the right set of companies at the right time, like on Black Friday or something. Um, uh, and, you know, the same thing is true with network service providers. Same thing is true is up and down. I mean, what if, um, you know, somebody breaking into a machine and said, well, you know, it's the, the NIC card driver um, and, um, and every machine that anyone ever owned with that NIC card, well, that again that whoever built that NIC card would completely go out of business this next day. So since we can't do that, um, uh, you know, I, I appreciate um, Joanne's message. And again, I'm not a security specialist, but we, if we do a, a, a set price limit or cost limit or expense limit that is required by um, security companies or companies with software, um, uh, to certify their, to spend on certifying that their product is secure. We still uh, haven't changed a thing really about where we are today, which is we have no idea why that 20% will actually make a difference. Um, and like the, the, Tyler, the one thing you missed, you might've implied it, but the one thing you missed in my point about the drug war is that the drug war makes money for both sides. <laughs> That's why it continues. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, I didn't imply that, but I agree. Yeah, the, the security companies make money by there being security risk. Just like the federal government and their suppliers make money. Well, the federal government doesn't necessarily make money. They take money. Um, but the suppliers make money because there is risk. And so they get to get more guns and more MRAPs and, and more planes and so on and so forth. And that's the problem in my mind. That's the, the, the same exact problem exists in the security industry today. We can't just say, well, we spent you know, 100 million last week on security and we had a failure. So this week it makes sense to spend 200 million. The strategy um, and how we build software um, is, is uh, or how we provide for the generic protection of environments based on some other methodology of biometrics, of, of uh, you know, morphing um, encryption, uh, of, of, of um, you know, I, I don't know. Again, I'm not a security expert. Um, I don't know. But those that rethinking how we apply security or how we protect against security to the point where I mean, it's, it's almost like Rob's uh, um, business, and I apologize, I'll get off my soapbox, but, but think about Rob's business. Rob's business is to take your mess and turn it into something, make it usable. And the point in my mind of the best security would be that it, you don't have to go out and make your environment picture perfect, shiny, polished with chrome over the entire body. Instead, you can apply security as a schematic using AI, using ML, using some combination of things over your environment, regardless of what your environment has. Uh, it, the, challenge, the challenge I see with some of this stuff, because you're right, Mark, I mean, our, our, 
a lot of what we do ends up having potential security implications for our customers, right? We help them patch the latest BIOS. We can turn on secure boot. We can help them rotate their passwords, right? Um, you know, this is down in the weeds, but it's a good example. Like the only way to set, um, change the default security policies on VMware passwords is actually to log into the box and, and change them, right? There is no API for it. Um, and so we had to code it in a way that by, you know, cause they, they didn't expose something as basic as, as setting part, you know, different security password, uh, postures. Um, and I, you know, this isn't calling VMware out. It's, this is the status quo when we're dealing with any security components across the board, they're not well-tested. They're not consistent. They're often, you know, not, not the easiest things to set. And the reality is most of the time with customers we have, it, they're not setting them. They're not testing them. They're not checking them. They're not taking advantage of the work that we have. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's, it's part of a lax attitude in, in what we're doing. I, I keep hoping that somebody's going to turn around and say, we love what you do because we were able to check all the security checkboxes, but we're more likely to get asked about features right? And, you know, adding, adding new capabilities than we are about, you know, doing better and better security integrations. Well, um, a question comes up is how educated are these folks on the security issues at your level? Uh, just saw a question the other day from someone who's very technical and has been working in software for a long time. And he's once he said, I'm putting together my presence on the web, is there a manual, is there a tutorial of how I can secure everything when I go out there? And I've known other folks who've actually moved their website to a larger organization just because they can no longer manage it with all the different moving pieces in the era of cloud and VMs and containers and security. So there's very little knowledge on the security side and hasn't been in software in general. Most developers up until now haven't really been educated in how to write a secure piece of software. They're just educated in how to write a piece of software. Security isn't even part of the education. Well, and the, and the risk of adding piece of software, right? Our, our... Uh, our, we just rolled out a new um, an improvement in our backend, and we asked, asked the engineer who's doing that to make sure it was secure and play with firewall. And they spent the day um, literally, you know, locking themselves out of the box and having to go in through the back doors to unlock it while they were testing how to secure the stuff. But you have to have the time, take the time, and ask them to go and do that. And it wouldn't happen. Frankly, actually, it wouldn't happen at all if we weren't getting asked by our customers about, you know, document, document your security practices across the board. Um, you know, let us know where the, what, what you're doing in every, in every case. And we're like, yeah, let's go in and tighten these things up. Um, even for us. And we try to be security minded. Um, I may, I, I feel like we're a little off. I, I mean, these are, these are very real problems. It's not just funding them. But are we ready for vendors to go slower? I mean, that, that to me is one of the questions. If, if, what, if you, what do you mean by vendors to go slower? Take more time at it? Go through more take, testing? What, what's, go, what's that go mean? Through more, go through more testing. Focus on security as a feature. Right, here's, here's my dilemma. I, I have never felt that security sold product. Right. I mean, we'll spend time in procurement going through cyber insurance contracts and all sorts of noise about that. It, you're right. You're absolutely right. It doesn't. Uh, I'll tell you a little story from my Rackspace days. I launched a VM replication product that let us introduce a low cost um, disaster recovery capability for mid market customers. And I found that. Uh, when we la launched that, our conversion rate in the sales cycle doubled 
That was more than 70% from our previous conversion rate of 40%. Wow. And uh, I was like, okay, this is great. This is a huge win. But then two years later, we only had 35 customers using the service out of a base of over 3,000. And so I went back and looked at it. And the, 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 the facts were what would happen is as companies would put the requirements in the RFP that would include a DR capability. But when it came time to actually buy, they inevitably would cut that off in the negotiation phase uh, for, the, for the final contract. So that happened like 80% of the time. So people, people pay lip service to things like risk mitigation for DR and for cybersecurity. But when it comes time to pay for it and budgets are actually spent, people back off from that. I mean, it, it, we have to build it into the system so you can't turn it off, right? That's, I mean, it's one of the things to me when Kubernetes came out, they were like, hey, we're, we're gonna require HTTPS for all our APIs. We're not even gonna offer HT, H, you know, unencrypted APIs. And, and this is like, that is an incredibly low bar. And yet, like OpenStack didn't start there. And it took a long, I don't think, I don't know that they've ever really gotten to the point where all of the APIs are encrypted by default. Super hard to change those things once they're in place. Um, so haven't we come full circle now? Back to, back to the suggestion that I made at the beginning of this call, which is this really has <laughs> to be up. embedded I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just no, saying no, I, that I, 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 mean, I believe you. I believe you're right. I, I, I would not be surprised if we spent an hour catching up to where you started. So, so we get back to the problem that Tyler mentioned, where when people are looking at software to buy, and it's embedded into the software, uh, or it's an add-on product, and uh, they have to check the box because those are the rules of the company. But when it's it's competitive, they they'll sit there and they'll check the box. But then when it comes to actually the purchase, well, the company that has it as an add-on has the advantage because you don't have to buy it, and suddenly it's cheaper again. So in Joanne's world, people wouldn't buy the one that's the add-on and not pay for the add-on they would actually do the right thing with security. But a lot of people will sit there, like Tyler said, and it'll make it a selling point for the product, but then it's not actually bought by the customer once the decision is made on what to buy, which, which uh, product to buy. That's so a- yes, it has to be built in, but you have to get everyone to build it in because the people will cut the corners and make things cheaper by having it as an add-on. Kind oh. of like the Boeing plane that had the software for the uh, safety <laughs> measure as an add-on and nobody even knew it was an add-on. <laughs> yeah. but, there, are, know, there, are ways, there are ways of, of doing that. For example, in certain situations, for example, government purchase. Government purchase, where the government, where a federal, federally mandated purchase of some equipment or systems or service is, uh, is made and it is obligatory, for example, that certain safety um, certifications come along with it. These are the kinds of things that actually do um, make a difference. I mean, the creation of underwriters, uh, underwriter laboratories, and 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 proof of um, you know best practices, and just wiring up a a, a transformer to power a, a radio or a, a, a an appliance of any kind made an incredible difference to the safety of, of, of technology that was there after um, purchased by the general public. 
So it's it's possible to make it happen. And the question that, that I think Tim raises is, is one that he hasn't yet enunciated. And that is, yes, you do have to build it in it has to be part of the of the of the process. The question then becomes, all right, who's the arbiter of or the judge of what is effective? And and you're going to get into another another food fight about, oh, we have to use this approach to security. No, it's this approach. Once again, we're human beings are really poor at assessing risk and measuring it and um we don't have good we don't have good answers and about the only way we can build risk models is looking at the past it's very hard to project okay so i like in you know Tim makes a very valid point i've had that flag raised in electronics for three years close to three years as you guys need to do something about this. But if I were to present to you or send you a map of what that industry looks like, it would look like spaghetti on a wall with knots because it's so highly fragmented. It's so difficult to trap, track and trace where parts come from, how they're assembled, who's assembling them, the risk mitigation strategies of an OEM to an EMS, an EMS to its uh, AVL partner, its approved vendor list partner, its private parts, goods that are you know put together literally in transit, etc. It's very very difficult. This would be like um, the 2021 version of RosettaNet kind of thing, where you have two or three big behemoths go out into the world and say, "You must," and it's a carrot and stick play. Yeah. Without necessarily doing that, though, there are other ways to skin the cat, which is uh, uh, in consideration of the fact that you have supply chain risk now already at the top of the heap of CEO problems because you have goods that are not coming in anymore. You have restrictions and tariffs on China. You have trade agreements that are up in the air now. You have new regulations on cybersecurity coming out of the US, blather, blather, and blather. The point being that the way to perhaps get this started from the hardware perspective is to go to the intels of the world, the semicons, and say, look, mm. you have to work with you know, some parameter. And it's not that they're unaware, they're willing to do it, but everybody downstream and even, you know, the sand providers upstream have to have a way to do this and have a, a, a process with which to document it and keep track of it and everything else. Materials compliance declaration does do part of that. It's already in existence. To make an ISO standard would get this across the board. But from the software perspective, now you're dealing with Congress passed the legislation in December. You have NIST trying to implement it and doing a terrible job, I would say. Um, sorry, but that's the fact. And then you have international relations, us and Mexico as part of you know, NAFTA II, uh, but also to be um, uh, combined with GDPR. And so, it's happening, but where, where we may have a leverage point is in automotive, because the cybersecurity standards for automotive are already defined as ISO standards, and the compliance for those could be easily compared to what we're talking about versus what they're already doing, because 90% of the vehicle is electronics. It, does that apply to software, Joanne? Yes, it's it's vehicle to anywhere. It's uh, software, hardware, uh, parts manufacturing. It's it's a very large standard. Um, I can get you a copy of it. We can run some analysis on it to see how how it might be beneficial. But I know the people that are involved in that area, and I would tell you that that if you really want to spearhead an initiative, because I don't understand why vendors would slow down at all. I mean, the vendor has to comply. Enterprise demands, vendors comply, period, full stop. Or at least that's the way it was in my world for many years. 
Um, now the shoe being on the other foot, I'm not sure if that still would apply, but I think that those are some ways that we could possibly move. And I know we're running out of time. Sorry, Mark. All right. No, uh, my, my point was um, really simple. I mean, and I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I agree with uh, what Joanne's saying and what's been said already um, relative to, you know, demands from suppliers, et cetera. But um, how, how much pressure do you think is on the patching teams for Apple and Microsoft every time they do a patch update to make sure that it's a security safe patch? How often when they apply a patch to solve a security problem, do they also then have to apply a patch a few days later because the new patch created a new security problem? I would ask you a better question. How often do you think that the Apple team has to go back to Foxconn and say, where, where or why are we finding these security holes? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that they're not all they're not all Foxconn related. Some might be, but a lot of them are just in their software. And the same thing is true with Microsoft. And so if if they have the kind of pressure that they have on them to fix a security hole in the first place with the whole eye on fixing a security hole, and yet they release a patch that, in fact, creates another security hole. How can we potentially have faith that we can actually identify all the risks in a piece of software before it's released to the general public. I mean, what, what magic tool do we have that's going to accommodate that? But my point would be, we don't, right? The, the, yeah. the only thing, the only, the only cure for security is that you have automation that applies the security. There, there is no, there is no, Fix the the only thing that you can do is I mean this is like the GPG key rotation you know every if if you are not in a posture of continuously patching which to Joanne's original you know or that way back point is it's a it's a systems issue you have to be able to propagate changes through your supply chain and your your delivery chain on an ongoing continuous basis. That that requires you to integrate all the vendors together. It requires you to own a process for it. It requires you to do it. And my experience has been people just don't think to build that, and it's super hard when they do. And there's another part of that. I think you have to recognize, just as you do with almost the manufacturer of anything, there are going to be errors. There are going to be problems that are that are uncovered. So one of the things that has to be built in is the ability to roll back. Another is the ability to, in a retrospect, in a retroactive fashion, isolate or insulate those parts of the parts of the systems that you're using that have been compromised. So there are, there are best practices and there are architectural system level aspects that have to be incorporated into the processes used to build these things and, there, and thereafter to operate them. And just as you would now not build a cloud-based, you know, hyperscaled service without a consideration that says there are going to be failures. I'm going to test for those failures. You would be that you would be remiss and you'd be called on the carpet for not doing so with respect to security. I love the vision you're painting. I feel like we are one or two breaches from everybody realizing they have to make that investment. For now, they're just whistling past the graveyard. Yeah, and it's it's going to be a. I think to Tim's earlier point about, um, and and Tyler's, it is going to be incorporated as, as a kind of a regulatory or, could be an industry regu self regulatory, but it's going to be regulatory regulation by by a community that basically says, if you can't demonstrate that you've incorporated 
these practices into the construction of your offering, it will not be purchased by government. It will not be purchased by these, you know, these leading customers, the big, your biggest customers. And they're, they, in fact, you know, are assuring their own long term, longer term safety, reducing their risk. And it just flows downstream to all of the suppliers. Welcome to ISO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I got to run. All right, folks. We're out of time, everybody. You Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Always yeah. enjoy these. As always, security conversations are provocative and challenging because I feel like we are treading water uh, in these topics and have to find the right points to really make difference. We have talked in the past about how the cloud is built on trust and everything we're building could fall apart if there are really significant fundamental problems uh, that, that undermine somebody's confidence in how they're structured and built. Uh, and security is the most likely place where all of that will come apart. Uh, so we need to take this seriously. Please join us at the2030.cloud and bring your voice into these conversations and help us find the places where we can work together to build a better cloud and technology infrastructure. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.